0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: Well, listeners, we're all liars here at Cases and Controversies, because, of course, last week we said we were taking a break until Supreme Court arguments resume in late February. Uh, But this week... Justice Stephen Breyer announced that after more than 40 years on the federal judiciary, 27 of those as a justice on the Supreme Court, Breyer said he'd be stepping down from active service. So here we are today to talk about Breyer's legacy, possible candidates for his historic replacement, and the timing of this upcoming confirmation battle, which I don't know about you, Jordan, but I'm looking forward to Um, That's sarcasm. Um, Before we do that, Jordan, can you tell us about how all of this unfolded?
1: Sure. So I don't know about you, Kimberly, but I wasn't necessarily expecting to be talking about this this week, but it was on Wednesday, I think, where seemingly out of the blue reports started coming in. I think first from Pete Williams at NBC that Breyer was going to be stepping down, and that was on Wednesday, January 26th. And there wasn't any word from the Supreme Court or the White House that day. So, you know, we all filed our pre-written stories for Breyer that we had lined up along with all the other newsrooms. And we finally got word on Thursday officially from Breyer that he was stepping down. Him and Biden had a little presentation over at the White House, some heartfelt words from each of them. I can't tell you, this is sort of a... Bittersweet day for
2: me. Uh, Justice Bryant, and I go back a long way, all the way back to the mid 70s when he first came on the Judiciary Committee, but that's another story. Thank you, Mr. President. That was terribly nice. And uh, believe me, I hold it right here.
1: <laughs> I- so that was yesterday, Thursday. This all feels like it's been a month or so the last couple days. And that's where we're at. Breyer's stepping down. In his letter, it says he's doing so, he intends for his retirement decision to take effect once the term's opinions are done, which usually are at the end of June or early July, assuming his successor is in place by then. So there's a bit of a lawyerly aspect to this. Not unprecedented. O'Connor did a similar thing, but that's the gist of where we're at.
0: Right, so I'd love to talk a little bit about timing. I guess before we get into that, was um, just wanted to clarify for listeners why this was the surprise that it happened now. I think um, kind of one of the two, or there are really two kind of traditional times when modern Supreme Court justices have stepped aside. Um, that coming in April, when the court ends uh, its arguments in cases and turns completely to writing its opinions, and then also after. The court has handed down its final opinions, which is when Breyer says he's going to try to step down. Um, So doing it in January, do we know why?
1: You know, it's one of those things like at the end of a mystery or horror novel, it all kind of makes sense in retrospect, but you weren't thinking it at the time. I mean, think about this. So I'm not going to accuse Justice Breyer of having a plan all along (laughs) because I don't know that that's the case. But let's say you're in his shoes. You're looking towards the end of a term, midterm elections coming up, which the Democrats may well lose in and lose control of the Senate that would be required to confirm a Democratic appointed nominee. Announcing it now in this time when the court is on its winter break makes a lot of sense because the court's not hearing arguments. So there's a bit of time. It lets the process start to play out in a way where he can then step down at the end of the term with a successor in place, not just announce at the end of the term, which really would have been a ramped up process where everything would need to happen over the summer. Obviously, Republicans put Barrett on the court on a much shorter timeline than that, in a much more hectic time than that, leading up to a presidential election. And there's the hypocrisy there, which we can save for another day. But just looking at it practically, it was an astute move, relatively, on Breyer's part.
0: Okay, so let's talk about that timing. Um, as you mentioned, uh, Breyer and Biden did uh, officially announce Breyer's retirement from the White House uh, Thursday afternoon, and Biden gave us a couple of little nuggets for what's coming up next. He confirmed his campaign promise to nominate the first black woman to the high court bench. So we'll be expecting the nominee to come from that pool of candidates. And then he also said that he intends to make his selection by the end of February. So that gives, we're looking historically, putting aside Amy Coney Barrett's um, confirmation, confirmations from nomination to actual vote in the Senate usually take about sixty six days. So that gives plenty of time for the Senate to consider the nomination and in time for the end of the term. So it looks like if that was Breyer's plan, then it should go off without a hitch. And I say without a hitch because Jordan, can you think of anything that Republicans can do to stop this nomination, given that they nuked the the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees with Gorsuch?
1: Right, so I think not, at least in the full Senate. My understanding is there's some gamesmanship to be had within the Senate Judiciary Committee in terms of getting the nominee out of committee. I don't think anything that would, unless they just protests, the Republicans just don't show up, something like that. I don't think that they can halt it indefinitely, but I think they can do stuff. The bottom line is to gum up the works, but certainly not to block it in the full Senate is my understanding of the Senate procedures.
0: Right. So I chatted a little bit with our judiciary reporter, Madison Alder, who said that you know the Judiciary Committee is split 11 to 11 right now. So um, it would take a little extra procedural vote if that is the vote um, to get Breyer's replacement out of committee. But she also noted that Senator Graham has either been voting for Biden nominees or not voting in order to make the vote 11 to 10 uh, to avoid that. Now, whether or not he'd do the same thing when it comes to the Supreme Court. Not sure. Um, but, you know, all this probably depends a lot on who the actual nominee is, right?
1: Right. Well, speaking of Graham, and not to get ahead of this part of our discussion, if you look at current D.C. Circuit Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, who is possibly the, the front runner, Graham is one of the Republicans who voted for her to confirm her to the D.C. Circuit. Again, there's certainly no rules in Congress saying that anyone has to be consistent and we've seen evidence of that
0: that's right so um, I guess we can talk about some replacements and this whole idea of the GOP gumming up the works again being very dependent on who the nominee is I think we have kind of common thinking is that there are two front runners um, you know Brown Jackson who you mentioned and not only did she get Graham's vote, but she also got um, two other Republican votes in Murkowski and Collins So I think if it comes to someone like Brown Jackson pretty good chance they get through Um, How about we go ahead and talk about some of her some of her qualifications. Do you want to give that a shot?
1: Sure, so she was a briar clerk for one thing and she spent some time also a la Breyer in the Sentencing Commission, which is Breyer's baby. So she has a criminal background. She also has some experience in public defense and also in private practice. Most recently, she's been an actual judge. She was on the district court for a while and most recently was appointed to the D.C. Circuit, though I don't think she's actually handed down any opinions yet on the D.C. Circuit. And so I was looking at some of her opinions on the district court. Maybe her most well known one came in the whole drama over subpoenas related to the Russia investigation and Don McGahn trying not to respond to a subpoena or Trump trying to stop McGahn from responding to a subpoena. And she ruled against the Trump side there. And I think it kind of goes to the point of as a district court judge, it's a little more difficult, I think, anyway, to compare a nominee to one who's been sitting on an appellate court like Leandra Kruger, who's Possibly the other front runner, who's on the California Supreme Court.
0: Right. So let me talk about Leandra Kruger. She, as you mentioned, is a justice on the Supreme Court and uh, of California, and has been since 2015. And she kind of has all the you know boxes you need to check for a Supreme Court nominee. So she clerked for John Paul Stevens on the Supreme Court. She comes from an Ivy League background. One extra thing to boost her resume is that she worked in the Solicitor General's office, so she has uh, a dozen Supreme Court arguments under her belt, and she's very familiar to the justices. I think on the California Supreme Court, she's come to have a reputation um, sort of like Breyer as course, a liberal, but a little bit more moderate. I think she's more likely to join with her uh, Republican colleagues than any of her other Democratic-appointed colleagues, um, but yet still a pretty strong liberal vote on, on that already liberal court. Uh, I think one thing we can talk about between these two candidates are their age and whether or not that's going to make a difference. So Leandra Kruger is younger. Um, she 45, is that right? Right. And... Brown Jackson is 51. So not that big of a difference there.
1: So here's what's weird, I think, about talking potential nominees' ages when it comes to this and looking even at current justices and their ages. At some point, to really make a meaningful assessment of what someone's age means, you need to take other things into account, right? I mean, you really need to know what their specific health situation is. People talk about, oh, this person's three years younger, as if that necessarily means something significant. And those factors on their own, I don't think say a whole lot. So 45 versus 51.
0: That's right. And so, you know, one interesting thing to note about Brown Jackson, if she were nominated, it would create another vacancy on the D.C. Circuit, which is often considered the second most important court in the country. Um, so that could be a plus for the Biden administration. Of course, Leander Kruger could fit in nicely there. Although, do you remember back when we were waiting for a solicitor general nominee? And there were uh, some reports that Kruger had been asked, not once, but twice, to take the position. And she said no. Um, uh, the common thinking being she really likes it in California. Um, it is a pretty it is a pretty awesome place to live versus D.C. Uh, so whether or not she'd give that up for a seat on, well, the Supreme Court, it probably, yeah, she probably would. Uh, but the D.C. circuit, I don't know.
1: Right. And an interesting thing about her not going for the solicitor general job assuming she had it which i think is a possibility she hasn't gone through the senate like katanji brown jackson has so i can't think of any reason why anyone would be particularly worried about that but if you're the white house and you're just weighing the factors against one another Again, I don't think it's a negative for Kruger, but maybe it's just more of a plus for Brown-Jackson that she's been through the Senate. It's been confirmed. I don't know what the White House is thinking as to all other things equal who they prefer. I think it's hard to compare them. I really don't know. But if everything else is equal, you have to think that's a plus for Brown-Jackson.
0: Right. And then I think kind of the third kind of further back possibility is J. Michelle Childs, who is a little older at 55, but of course still within the range of having decades on the Supreme Court. Um, She is a district court judge currently, um, which would be unusual to elevate someone directly from a district court to the Supreme Court. But she has been nominated by Biden for the D.C. Circuit. Um, My understanding is that her confirmation hearing should actually happen soon. So that could be a signal. uh, Why would the Biden administration put her up for the D.C. Circuit if she was just going to go through this you know, the Supreme Court nomination again. But again, we have to wait and see. So one thing, um, the one plus for Childs is that she has the backing of Biden ally Representative Clyburn, who is a South Carolina Democrat, which is where Childs sits now. Um, But I think, again, common thinking is that she's kind of a third possibility, but a distant third. And then there are others in the mix, too, right? Some judges who have recently been put on the circuit court by Biden.
1: Right. You have recently put on the Seventh Circuit, Candace Jackson Akumi. And one interesting thing about her, I think, Katanji Brown Jackson, she has public defense experience, but... Judge Jackson Akumi, is now on the Seventh Circuit, she was really a public defender for a long time and has significant trial experience there. So she seems to be almost really more of a public defender than Ketanji Brown Jackson is. So if you're comparing that type of experience, she might have more of that. You know, she's less of a known quantity as a judge. She's just recently appointed.
0: Yeah, and then... Uh, There's Holly Thomas, who recently got on the Ninth Circuit. I think there are a few names too, some non traditional names um, looking outside of judges. Um, so, of course, the only justice now who sits on the Supreme Court who has never been a judge is Elena Kagan. And I think um, one name that's popped up a lot for Briar's replacement is Sherilyn Eiffel, who is currently the head of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, but who has already announced she's stepping down in the spring of 2022. So, I don't know about you, but that timing is like perfect.
1: True. And- And there is some Supreme Court precedent as far as uh, previous justice who held her position, Thurgood Marshall. So there's some history there, right, who Kagan clerked for. So some kind of weird full circle.
0: All right. So some other names, very qualified people. But um, I think, you know, we've we've listed, you know, a big part of the world that Biden is probably going to be looking at. One thing to note is that his team over at the White House is extremely experienced in judicial nominations. Um, Again, I talked to our White House reporter, Courtney Rosen, um, about this, and she was saying it's probably the most um, experienced team to be picking a Supreme Court nominee. So something good for Biden, who himself has a little experience having been, you know, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And of course, he has help from his vice president, President Harris, who was on the Senate Judiciary Committee as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, whatever else there is to be said about however the White House is running, it seems like when it comes to judges, they have their act together coming off of the Trump administration, which also one of the most significant parts of that White House was all the judges. So continuing that trend of the White House taking that super seriously, which the Democrats haven't always done as well as the Republicans. So it seems like that's being kept in mind by the current White House.
0: So Jordan, one name we haven't mentioned as a possible replacement is Vice President Harris.
1: Is that only because that's definitely not going to happen or some other reason?
0: Yeah, I think, yeah. So there have been some thoughts that she might uh, be the nominee. It wouldn't be totally like you know, crazy to put her up there. She is, of course, a a black female. um, And she was the Attorney General of California. So um, it's not like she's totally um, unknown to the legal community.
1: Yeah, it seems like that would be a good way for the Democrats to screw this up. Um, (laughs) Kind of clutching defeat from the jaws of uh, quasi-victory.
0: So Harris is going to be the nominee. Got it. Well, exactly. That's
1: (laughs) the only reason why you can't totally count it out, but there's no reason to take it seriously unless there is.
0: Well, I think one thing is we heard there was um, on Wednesday before we had gotten the official announcement, there was a customary um, press briefing in which the uh, White House spokeswoman said that she wasn't going to talk about any hypotheticals because there had been no official announcement, but she did say that President Biden plans on running in 2024 with Harris on the ticket. So to me, that seems like it's not really a consideration for the White House. So let's talk a little bit about um, what a new replacement would mean for the Supreme Court. OK, so it's pretty um widely reported that, you know, the justices say that any new member of the court completely changes it, which means like over the last five years, the like completely changed a thousand times. I think that math is right. But as far as how a new justice is going to affect case outcomes, we think it's probably close to zero, right?
1: Yeah, that's pretty close to zero, certainly in any of the end of term blockbusters that people are waiting for. One area is criminal law, I guess, where Breyer was somewhat conservative, so his replacement, depending on how they are, could potentially move, not the court, but his seat to the left, so to speak. Again, what that means now on the court, who knows, but-
0: The criminal defendant would only lose five to four rather than six to three, right? With Justice Gorsuch possibly being you know, a fourth vote.
1: Right, and within criminal, it depends what we're talking about, obviously, Death penalty, Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment claims; those aren't going anywhere in favor of defendants. But in some areas, we'll see. We the Justice Barrett we're still feeling out. I think in those, in some cases. Uh, so again, if the answer is, is this going to change the court at all? The answer generally is no. But that's one area to watch out for. I think.
0: All right. Well, that's a lot about replacements. Before we go, do you want to talk a little bit about Breyers? legacy on the court?
1: I don't know if it was the best time for him to be on the court, you know? You think back, what's his most memorable opinions? Certainly not many in the majority. I mean, and that kind of speaks to, I guess from the Democrats' view, the importance of replacing him. He's had a lot of concurrences, again, some stuff on the death penalty, administrative law, but it seems like His legacy is almost more of his personality than his opinions of being this kind of moderating force and spokesperson for the rule of law, even internationally. And I don't know if you wake me up in the middle of night and say, what's what's the Breyer legacy opinion? You know, I don't know. Going back to sleep.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I think one of the really interesting things about Breyer's time on the Supreme Court is that he had one of the longest stints as the most junior justice. And so he went 11 years being the most junior justice. Man, I envy Supreme Court reporters during that time. They didn't have to cover a single Supreme Court confirmation. Those jerks. Um, Anyway, (laughs) 11 years. So that means that, yeah, you're right. Uh, Particularly at the beginning of his tenure, he didn't have a lot of the major opinions because, you know, those went to more senior justices. I do think, you know, he's written some things on abortion rights um, that seem like they're going to be undone pretty soon here. And then as you mentioned, Jordan, I think for me, and I haven't heard this from a lot of other people, his most memorable decision for me was that death penalty dissent in Glossop versus Gross, um, kind of laying down a marker. But now of course, both he and Justice Ginsburg are not on the bench to continue that out. Uh, but it was a really, you know, kind of powerful dissent. And it was one of the only times I think I could remember, more than two justices reading from their opinions on the bench?
2: Well, Justice Ginsburg and I join Justice Sotomayor's uh, dissenting opinion. We have also filed uh, a separate uh, dissenting opinion of our own. Uh, In that opinion, we state our belief that the time has come for the court to again consider a more basic question Uh, whether the death penalty itself is constitutional.
0: So normally, you know, uh, the majority author will read from the bench, kind of announce the Supreme Court's opinion, and then maybe in, you know, big deal cases, a dissenter might read um, some of their dissent. This time, there were four justices who spoke, and and specifically Justice Scalia, who was in the majority in that case also, um, read aloud from the bench, to respond to Justice Breyer's dissenting opinions,
2: I have filed an opinion responding essentially to Justice Breyer's uh, proposal that we abolish the death penalty.
1: Right. The death penalty point is interesting because, like you said at the time, Brian Ginsburg expressing their view as far as the death penalty potentially being unconstitutional, with Breyer off the court there's potentially not going to be anyone on the court who has that view. Again, it's not going to change the outcome in any case. And it's interesting that Sotomayor hasn't joined in that view, despite her speaking out more in death penalty cases than Breyer has. She hasn't, in some respects, gone as far as him, as far as being against the death penalty outright. So it'll be interesting to see what his replacement's view on that is, because we might not have any death penalty decisions from that nominee to look at another opinion that i think is maybe one of the most memorable for Breyer. and again this was interesting as far as an opinion announcement is in that parents involved uh, school case that dealt with race which is going to be a topic that's coming up again with affirmative action and maybe we can even play a clip from that it is not often in the law that so few have so quickly
2: changed so much. The conclusion of all this is simple. Yesterday, the plans under review were lawful. Today, they are not. Yesterday, the citizens of this nation could look for guidance to this court's unanimous pronouncements concerning desegregation.
1: Today, they cannot. It was interesting, I think, as far as him sounding the alarm on where the court was going. Again, he's a moderate guy. He's a conservative guy in a lot of ways but he would sometimes sound that kind of alarm about where he thought the court was going and this was one of those times
0: yeah I think you know what's what's really ironic about Justice Breyer is he insists that the Supreme Court is not political and regardless of what you think of that I think it's hard to see the timing of this um, retirement announcement as anything but sort of politically savvy on his part of course he did spend a lot of time as a senate aide so he knows what's at stake here
1: right but it was still almost jarring to see him do this thing that kind of made a lot of common sense because it wasn't clear if he was going in that direction so it almost seems like as a character he kind of saved himself at the end of the movie in a way
0: at the end of a Lithuanian movie, you might say. Um, no, I say that because that's one of m- many, many zany hypotheticals from Justice Breyer, which I think will also be part of his legacy and something personally as somebody who sits through a lot of Supreme Court arguments will really, really miss. It's just his totally off-the-wall hypotheticals that often do get kind of to the heart of what's bothering him and what should be bothering others, just so
1: people putting stuff in his underwear.
2: I hate to tell you, it just seems to me like a logical thing. When an adolescent child has some pills or something, they know people looking for them, they'll stick them in their underwear. I'm not saying everyone would, but I mean, somebody who thinks that that's a fairly uh, normal idea for uh, some adolescent with some illegal drugs to think of, I don't think he's totally out to lunch, is he?
0: Well, you know, I've already done a, a video on hypotheticals and a story on the hypotheticals, so. For all of you who are wanting to learn more about Justice Breyer's hypotheticals and wanting to follow along with the latest on the Supreme Court confirmation, you can follow along at news.bloomberglaw.com.
1: you ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? Have you ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are, and how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.